Well, good morning. How are we? We're getting close. Close to the ends of Philippians. Do I look relaxed? I can't tell you. Uh, it seems like I'm drinking a lot more coffee than usual. You know, with folks just enjoying conversation. Uh, and, uh, and it seems like every night we're at dinner. Uh, someplace with someone, and and uh, and we're really enjoying our time. But I put on about four pounds, <laughs> so so I'm kind of wearing the. I maybe should button the jacket. Uh, we're uh, delighted to be in the letter of Philippians. It's just one of my very favorites, and so I wanted to go there uh, in this last sermon series, which we're calling because it's worth it. And we talked about that key passage in chapter three that really sets forth. Uh, the the why it's worth it all uh, to us uh, last week. So this morning we're just going to take a walk into chapter four. If you will join me there. So if you have a Bible or if you have a smart device that has a Bible app, let's go there to chapter four of Philippians. You will remember that Paul is writing this letter, this little letter to the Philippians from a prison cell and has been there for about two years in Rome, chained to a Roman soldier. And so it's always good to have that context when we look at how Paul approaches the challenges that we face and that he was facing. And so beginning with chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, okay, now hold on a minute. Wait, right there. What's going on here? We've said this a million times in the past, that any time you come in Scripture to a therefore, you've got to stop and take a look at what it's there for, okay? Because what Paul is doing is he's, have, he's asking us to look back and connect what he's just said with what he's about to say. Does that make sense? And we talked last week, the challenge in chapter 3 was between, between, between the teaching of the legalists, you know, who taught that, you know, that that religion was about legalism and about keeping the law and keeping all the traditions and particularly all those Jewish traditions of the Judaizers. It was, you know, there, there was that challenge. And on the other end, there was a challenge of those who Paul describes as whose God is their belly, who just follow their innate desires. They're just, they're natural desires. They're just, they live in, they live in a, in a licentious kind of way. And Paul says, it's not about legalism. It's not about license. It's about what? It's about knowing Christ, knowing him intimately and following him. It's about, you know, it's about him and him alone. And, and so what Paul has set up for us in, in, in chapter 3, he has basically said, he, he has said, he said, everything that I've accomplished, every, every title, every degree, every, every accomplishment that I've had in ministry, he said, in comparison to knowing Christ, it is, it's crap. If you were here last week, now if you weren't here last week, please go back and listen to the podcast because it will help you understand this week when you understand last week. Because it's very important you understand that what Paul is going to do today is, is first of all, is reestablish your position in Christ will determine how you practice your faith. Your position in Him will influence what you, what you do and how you practice 
your faith. So he's saying, therefore, in light of what I just said to you about, about leaving everything else behind, not looking over your shoulder and following after Christ and it being one goal and one goal only, and that is to know him completely in your life. Therefore, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, and the word there is Stephanos. You remember last week, Paul says, there is laid up for me a crown in heaven, and it's the word Stephanos. It's the athletic, it's the wreath that's worn by the athlete who wins the race. And Paul just said, y'all, you're my crown. You're my Stephanos. When I cross into heaven, you know, the thing that I want to see is you there around the throne with me. You're my crown. And then at the end of the verse, he says, my beloved. So in six verbs, six in, 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 in six phrases there, he defines this, how personal his relationship is with this church. Six phrases that describe this deep, important, and personal relationship. Brothers whom I love that I long for, that are my joy and my crown and my beloved. So now you know how I feel about you by way of application. And Paul here is hopeful that his words will not only be helpful and heeded because of his, he is very hopeful that his words are going to be are going to be helpful. They'll be heeded because of his love and because of the trust that's been built up with this little church at Philippi. And so he appeals to this very personal, trustworthy relationship that he has with them. And I would do the same with you this morning. And then he says, "Stand fast in the Lord." Now it's the first of the verbs, but. What you're going to notice in this text is every verb in, the, in these next, you know, nine or ten verses is present tense, and there are two in future tense. You remember last chapter I said, don't look behind, don't look back at the past. You're going to face forward, and you're going to, and you're going to move forward. And so every verb it follows in this, in the, that's following in this text, in these exor- two exhortations to the church of Philippi, are in present tense, and then there are two in future tense. Because where are we going? We're not, look, we're not facing backwards. Where are we going? We're facing forwards. That's where we're going. In the present, this is what we practice in the present and we expect in the future. And so the first verb is in present tense, stand fast in the Lord. Now, where have you heard that before? In the end of chapter 1, in verse 27... Listen to what Paul says. It's as he begins the first set of exhortations. And we said in our outline, if you've looked at the outline of Philippians that I handed out to you, we said there are two sets of exhortations. The first set begins in verse 27 with this very similar sounding phrase. That I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so Paul is, in the same way he introduced the first set of exhortations at the end of chapter 1, now begins the second set of exhortations with the same admonition to stand firm. 
That's the word in Greek, stako. It means to stand firm. It means to persevere. It means to continue. It means to keep one's standing or one's position, if you will, and to hold one's ground. Now, that's the basis of what I'm going to say to you. Paul is appealing to them out of their position in Christ. He says, you are standing firm. You're on very firm ground. The foundation that's been laid in your life is Jesus Christ, and there's no other foundation. But now that you have that foundation, stand firm. That's positionally where you are. Now I'm going to tell you how to put some things into practice, if you will. So here's your first exhortation then. After saying stand firm, he says... I entreat Euodia and Synthiki to agree in the Lord. What's that about? You'll remember that in chapter 2, in Paul's first exhortations to the church, there is an appeal to the essential unity needed within the body of Christ, within the church, but in broader terms. And now he gets very pointed and very specific, calling out, Two women in the church, Euodia and Synthiki. Now listen, Paul's method of handling, and you may not like this, we don't do this often around Wildebin, so if you're new here, I don't normally call you out in that way. Right? Blaine? <laughs> but we can talk later. No, Paul's method of handling this rift between these two women would indicate that the clash was a clash of personalities. It was not a clash of doctrine. Now you remember in chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 3, when Paul addresses the false teachers, the Judaizers, the legalists that were that were trying to influence and carry this church in the wrong direction, he calls them mongrels, mongrel dogs and mutilators. Paul's not afraid of tough language, but in this instance, this isn't a doctrinal issue. This is, a, this is two ladies that have a personality problem. They're just not meshing. The chemistry is just not working, if you will. And, and so he becomes very serious with them because their rift is affecting the, the work of the gospel. It's impeding the work that needs to be done. And so he says to these women, agree in the Lord. Now, I'm using the English Standard Version, but it's a pretty poor translation because the literal language here in the Greek is, be of the same mind in the Lord. Be of the same mind in the Lord. And the word mind there in this verse is the word phroneo and it's the very same word that Paul used to speak in chapter 2 of Jesus when he said let this mind let this phroneo be in you which was also in Christ Jesus so what is he doing for for Yodi and Synthiki he's 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 kind of reflecting back he's picking up that same word Yodi and Synthiki you, you ought to have the same mind that Christ had of humility and so you ought to be able to come together and be of one of one and same mind in the Lord. And then in verse 3 he says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion. Um, and the literal translation there could be yoke fellow. 
And uh, now the the original word there you have, I put it in there. Do you see it? Sissy gay, yoke fellow. It could be a description of someone that he has come to appreciate in that body that has been a fellow laborer and a yoke fellow with him in the yoke of Christ. Or it could be that it's a proper name. It could be capital S. We don't know which. What we do know is that Paul was probably asking him to live up to his name and be my companion, be my yoke fellow in this Siziki. Help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life. Once again, a positional statement. Do you see it? Whose names are already there, already found in the book of life. So on the basis of your relationship with God, on the basis of what we sang, blessed assurance, you two women... Bring your minds together in the Lord. Now, the application would be fairly simple for any of us here. You having problems with anybody in the room today? In such a way that it's impeding the unity and the work of Willowbend Church? Have the same mind together in the Lord. Are you working on the relationship? Are you praying for that person? Are you seeking to understand before you're understood? Are you listening? Are you taking initiative? Interesting. See, what Paul just did in the Philippian letter was he addressed the elephant in the room that everybody knew about. See, in chapter 2, when he talked about, about having a spirit of humility and, and unity in kind of in general terms, what do you think was stirring up in the minds of the Philippians? Yodia and Synthiki. Hmm. I don't think Paul was just hoping that they would hear. I think he's hoping that we would all hear. And that's the first of his exhortations. And then there's a second exhortation. After an exhortation to unity, now comes an exhortation to practice the Christian virtues. And so what I want to do is I want to just talk about these five things that are mentioned here in, you know, in context of these next few verses so that you can have a sense of of what those virtues are. See, from your position of being in Christ, Paul is saying, put into practice, first of all, pure joy, then presence with one another, then prayer, and then peace, and then the practice of meditation. Five things. So let's look at the first. From your position of being in Christ, put into practice, choose joy, pure Joy, rejoice, and it's, a, in a, it's an imperative here, in present tense, active imperative. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. 
Choose joy. Now, why would he repeat himself? Most of the commentators will, will say it's most likely that he wants to emphasize the need for joy because of the suffering that the Philippian church is entering into and the persecution that they've begun to experience. And so what Paul is saying to him, no matter what happens, no matter what the circumstance in your life, whether it be good or bad, you, can, you have a choice to make. You, will, you can choose how you will respond. And I exhort you to rejoice in the Lord. Now, let me make something clear. When we go to the letters like, like this, we look for key words to help us determine what the themes or the emphasis of the letters are. And we stated as we began Philippians that 19 times in 104 verses, Paul uses the word joy or rejoice. So it's clearly one of the themes, right? This is a letter about joy, is it not? But even more so, even more so, I would remind you that in 104 verses, 72 times Paul uses a proper name for Jesus. Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ you know, several times he uses God the Creator, but it's 72 times out of 104 verses. So what's the real emphasis of the letter? It's what Jesus is doing. So he says, so you can rejoice where? In the Lord, because you're positionally in Him. Do you get it? And so practically, how does that work out? You choose joy. Secondly, he says, presence. Now, by that I mean, I'm not talking about God's presence. I'm talking about how you're present with others. And so I've given it the name non-anxious presence. I'll explain my meaning in a moment. Verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, William Barclay and Homer Kent and others that I've read recently say that this is the most, in the Greek, the most untranslatable word in all of the Greek vocabulary. So that makes it a pretty interesting word, right? This is the most untranslatable word in all of the Greek vocabulary. In other words... It's a real problem if you're trying to produce a verse-by-verse and word-for-word translation of Scripture and you come to this word, epi case, you have to choose a word to translate it. But there's just not a word that translates that really does it any justice because it's just that complex and full of meaning kind of, of word, all right? So the Greek is epi-case. So we need to talk first of all about what it is and where does it apply and then the why. And then why do we apply it, okay? What it is, epi-case. The English Standard Version translates it here, reasonableness. The New American Standard, gentle spirit. The Living Bible says that you are considerate or with consideration. 
The Holman Christian Standard Version, graciousness. The King James Version, moderation. The Message Bible, which is a paraphrase. Make it as clear as you can to all you meet that you're on their side and you're working with them and not against them. The Common English Bible, gentleness. That's shared with the NIV and, and the Net Bible. The International Children's Bible says, be known for your gentle and kind spirit. The Tyndale Bible, softness. The Good News Bible, gentle attitude. The Revised Standard Version, your forbearance. The Weymouth Translation, your forbearing spirit. Are you seeing the translators having a problem here? Because this is just a word that you just can't hardly translate. It has too many and too vast a set of meanings, if you will. The, the, the Greek dictionary words include fair, equitable, mild, patient, gentle. And it's all that. But this old boy, this preacher, has been searching for a word that expresses to me what non-anxious presence really looks and feels like. Now, that term comes from family systems theory. And I promise you, I am not an expert on family systems theory by any stretch. But I have learned that all living organisms live in systems relating to one another. Objects live in a kind of a linear way, A affects B. But, you know, but when it comes to living organisms, they, we, we act and we react, and, and it's very unpredictable how that will happen in, in so many instances. But we live in these sort of circular, complex you know, uh, kind of relationships with each other that help us to define our, ourselves in relationship with, with others. And so we... So we get involved in systems, and, and the most common of those systems is what you call family systems. And, and so every one of us is, a, is part of a family, right? And so there's a certain kind of a system that is created in your family in those relationships with, with, with behaviors of all involved that sometimes become very patterned, almost habitual, Right? It's just the way we learn how to do things. And, and, and because, because human family systems are made up of humans, they tend to be pretty dysfunctional. Right? So, but everybody lives in that system and it's kind of dysfunctional. Everybody, there's a pattern of behaviors that develops in it. And so everybody sort of accepts a certain kind of role in the, in the family. And, uh, and so you're, 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 you're struggling not only to, to sort of keep some balance with your, with your sense of your own identity and yourself, your separateness, but you live in a system where you're close to people and you're connected to people and you're trying to maintain some sense of, of, of balance in that. And so you, you have to learn how to express yourself in a family system. In, 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 a, in the phrase they use is self-actualization. At the same time, you've got to somehow be able to manage and keep some kind of a balance of, of, of closeness or connectedness without being absorbed or fused with people where you lose your identity. Man, it's complicated, isn't it? And, and so, uh, so I read uh, Edwin Friedman's work, which is like about 500 pages. And, uh, and then I came across Peter Stanky's work, which is only about 150 pages. And uh, that helped. And so I want to show you a diagram from out of Stanky's work. Um, can you put that up there? 
Okay, this is ripped right out of Peter's think is how the church family works. Because churches are families too. You get it? Yeah, I mean, that's even the metaphor that's used in Scripture again and again. So churches are a family system too, okay? And so here's the, here's the problem. Uh, there's a lot, the, you know, one of the primary issues of any family is going to be anxiety. How you deal with anxiety, how you deal with pain or suffering or anxiety. And so, so you, you can, so, so here I am. I'm, I'm this separate individual, but I'm living connected and close, and I'm trying to figure this out. And so you can, so you can just, you can diagram anxiety on this kind of a graph, where if you see on the left side, there's, there is my toleration of pain, which is in myself, my own ability to tolerate pain. Does that make sense? And it goes from low to high at the top of the graph. So it's my, my ability to tolerate pain. Okay, and that is in association in a family system with my ability to tolerate pain in others. The pain or the suffering or the anxiety that others are experiencing in that system. So do you see how you can then create a Johari window, a a, a window with like four panes in it, where you can kind of generally locate yourself, all right? So if, if you have a high pain tolerance but you have very much difficulty p- tolerating pain in others, then what happens? You become a rescuer. Bingo! That's the family system I grew up in. That's the role I learned to play. Oh my goodness, and then I chose ministry. <laughs> Why? Because I have a high pain tolerance, and I can't just stand it. I can't stand it when you're in pain. You get it? Right? And what happens? What happens to people who live in that quadrant for very long? It's called burnout. You burn out unless you figure out how to manage the stress between you know, your ability to tolerate pain and, and the ability to tolerate pain in others. In other words, am I willing to, to watch people struggle? Now, I'll tell you, over the last four or five years, I've gotten real good at watching you struggle. Because I have learned, you know what? Your spiritual life is not my responsibility. You know whose responsibility it is? I won't stand before God for you. When you stand before God, give account of your life, I don't plan to be there. I plan to be off enjoying myself somewhere in heaven. I'm just saying, and I hope you're ready. Because it's not my job to get you there. I'm not your Savior. Jesus is your Savior. And you need to know Him, and you need to know Him well. That's chapter 3. Right? That's chapter 3. That's where we were last week. You know what I'm saying? And so, see, what happens is... There, there's some of us in here have a low pain, low pain tolerance, and, and we also, we can't tolerate pain in others. And we become the silent sufferers. That we just live in a kind of a helplessness, a helpless kind of state. And then there's some of us who have a low pain tolerance in ourselves, but we don't mind <clears throat> letting others feel our pain. And so we're the ones that are always complaining. Woe is me. My suffering is always worse than yours. And we're always looking for somebody over in, you know, in that top left quadrant to rescue us. 
You see, and, 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 and some, of those, some of those tendencies become like magnets. They, right? And the only way there's real growth and maturity in a family system is when, you know what I'm saying, when I am willing to tolerate pain within myself, when I can play hurt, right, and I'm willing to let others struggle, you know, themselves. And this became so clear to me um, a few years ago uh, when my son Jess uh, had been living in an apartment and he had, had was working for a veterinarian and he had adopted all these different kinds of pets. He had a pet fox, he had a pet ferret, he had a pet raccoon, he, he had a dog. He had every, you know, in his apartment, he had all of those, okay? So, so when, he, when, he, when he moved out of his apartment, uh, he went down to the Kroger's and he rented the carpet cleaning machine, hoping he'd get some of his deposit back, okay? And so he was informed sh- shortly after, after he moved out by the, apartment owners that he owed them a significant bill of about 800 bucks to not only lose his deposit but to replace the carpet so my my young 20 something son calls me on the phone dad can we have lunch and his objective is twofold it is either that i help him figure out how to get out of this $800 $800 debt by some legal maneuvering or that I'm going to write a check for $800. I'm saying, you see, because he's, he's down there, you know, whatever, in that bottom left, and he's looking for, that, for dad to be up there in the top left in rescue mode. And so he starts laying out the story full of emotion. And I just smile at my son and I say, oh, Jess, this is such a wonderful opportunity for you. <laughs> a wonderful opportunity for you for growth. And it's only, gonna, it's only coming at an expense of about $800. You know what? It could have been a lot more, but it's only $800. But, but you're not going to be able to get out of it. And what are you going to do? Dad! Jess, this is a wonderful opportunity for you. <laughs> I mean, I just kept... And, and see what happened? What I did was I conveyed what is, what is called non-anxious presence. I'm with you, but I'm not getting into your stuff because you're responsible for your stuff. But I care. But so you just speak very calmly. You speak very... You know what I'm saying? You're, you know, very reasonably... You know what I'm saying? You're, you're, you listen well. You know what I'm saying? But, but you, you don't become codependent. You don't, you, you don't carry somebody else's load. And so the way, you get, the way that there's some maturity comes is when we... When you see, and, and, and Friedman in his book, he uses this illustration. He says this. It's like we're all in a boat. It's like the family's in a boat, Right? All right, and so you're trying to trying to keep that boat in balance and keep it afloat, right? We're all trying to survive, and so somebody stands up in the boat and starts jumping up and down, right? And everybody's screaming, "Sit down, sit down!" But they won't sit down. So what do we do? We all move to another place in the boat, 
to try to get it into equilibrium, right? Does that make sense? I'm saying so, and that's what family systems do because we've got to maintain some level of balance. And so, so we become real dysfunctional because we start taking on a role because we've got to go to some place in the boat. You know, when daddy comes home drunk, everybody has to move, shift position in the boat. Right? Because we've got to keep this thing afloat. We've got to keep it in balance. And so we live in these dysfunctional kind of family kind of a system. And, and I'm reminded of a story in the Gospels. Luke chapter 8. Remember, Jesus says to disciples, hey guys, get in the boat, let's go to the other side. And so they, they, they sail out into the Lake of Galilee, and a sudden squall comes up, and suddenly they're in a storm. And these fishermen, who, who have a pretty good idea of what you do, because they're fishermen, they grew up on this lake, they start battening down the hatches and bringing down the sail, and, and they're scurrying around the boat, and, and they're, they're securing uh, the cargo. And, 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 but, you know, but the squall just keeps getting bigger and bigger in spite of all their efforts. And finally, they come to Jesus. And where is he? He's asleep in the bow of the boat. You talk about non-anxious presence. He's asleep. Lord, don't you care? We are all perishing out here. He stands up in the boat. And he just simply looks at the waves and says, peace, be still. Non-anxious presence. And then he looks at the disciples and he says, where's your faith? Where's your faith? And so, so here's the deal for me. I think this word reasonableness, I think this word in Verse 5 is my definition of non-anxious presence. It's, it's reasonable, it's gentleness, it's consideration, it's being gracious, it's, it's uh, doing things in moderation, it's being kind, it's being forbearing and patient in the, with the process. It's being present with people but not being in anxiety. Why? Because I've got Jesus in my boat. I, I, I brought Jesus on my boat. I don't have to live high anxiety. Everything doesn't have to be a state of emergency. Because I, I know there's someone who cares about me who's in my life and is with me every step along the way and all I've got to do is go to him. So Paul says, from your position of being in Christ, put into practice pure joy and presence, non-anxious presence. And then he says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And there's the third exhortation. There's pure joy, non-anxious presence, 
in prayer. And the word prayer there is prosuke. It's, it's linked to the idea of worship and adoration. And if you just look at the words that describe how Paul encourages and exhorts them to pray, he says with prosuke, with a sense of worship and adoration, knowing before whom you bow and you pray with supplication. In other words, expressing your needs with thanksgiving. And the Greek there is eucharistos. You recognize the root of that word from those of you that grew up Catholic. But it means thanksgiving, with thanksgiving, and let your requests, your desires, literally, your desires be made known to God. You see, you see, the, the spiritual disciplines are not there just to be disciplines within themselves. There's a goal, there's a purpose behind the disciplines like prayer, and that is that we know God, that we connect with God, that He, you know, that we that we come to understand His heart and He hears our heart. So always keep that goal in mind. Paul is always going to remind us, guys, we don't have to be without anxiety. We don't have to be full of anxiety. We have prayer. We have this conversational relationship that we can go to, that we can go to at any point in any time. And then fourth, he says, peace. Verse 7, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. What an incredible statement. The peace that comes from God surpasses all understanding. And it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You may be familiar, that word guard means umpire. It will umpire your hearts. In Christ Jesus. The peace, the irene in Greek, it's shalom. It would be the Hebrew counterpart. And it's a, a loaded term. It's not just the absence of conflict. It is, it is not the absence of conflict or the absence of trouble. It's peace in the midst of conflict and trouble. A sense of wholeness, a sense of inner harmony, of inner health and wellness Peace, rest are in that word. So he says, so you choose joy and non-anxious presence and you exercise prayer and you will experience peace, profound peace that the world cannot understand. And then last he says, practice meditation. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And the, and the, the word there is logizomai. It means to dwell on, to camp out on, to drill down on these things. Meditate on these things, if you will. You see, we can spend a great deal of our time fighting the bad things in our life, 
focusing on all, the, all, of, all of our faults and, and our struggles and our trials. And we can do that, of course. Or we can entrust those things to him in prayer, experience his peace, and focus our energy on those things which produce good in us. Good result in us. Things that are true and honorable and lovely and pure and excellent. And Paul says, make this the place that you meditate, that you take your mind. Verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Practice and keep practicing. Practice, practice, practice. Practice, practice pure joy, practice non-anxious presence, practice prayer and peace and meditation in all that is good. And then he says, and the God of all peace will be with you, will be with you. You will know his presence in a profound way. That's where he wants you to live. That's the privilege of your position in him, not by your work, but by his finished work on a cross. If you are in Christ, you are positionally, positionally in him, forgiven and free, righteous, not because of your righteousness. Paul says, I don't want to be found having my own righteousness by any means, but his that which was established by his finished work on a cross. So from that position, you can put into practice these things. Christian, you can have joy. You, you know, you could be like me and quit trying to take responsibility for every bad thing that goes on with somebody else. And learn to be yourself and to live freely. But at the same time, to be present with others while they struggle. And they work out their salvation with fear and trembling. And you can always have this constant contact, this conversational relationship in prayer that leads to peace, profound peace. And you can keep those good thoughts. You can meditate on all the things that are good, that God has brought. Every blessing God's brought into your life. What a cool way to live. Want to do that? All right, let me pray for you. Father, there might be somebody here who doesn't understand what we mean by being in position with Christ. And so perhaps they've never been to the place where they've, they've just brought their life before you and knelt at the cross and confessed sin and confessed you as Savior and as Lord because it was you who paid the penalty and the price of their sin, who ransomed them from the incredible debt that was, you know, that was over their head that they would never be able to repay. But you've called them, Father, and we pray that you would call them today just to come to bring their life before you and open their heart to you and receive Jesus and receive his offering of forgiveness and grace and freedom through the work that he and he alone did for us. To those of us, Father, that are positioned in him, 
help us to put into practice these exhortations of Paul. First to unity. And then to Christian virtues. Which will build us up. And to help us to know you better. And better.